these are two bands, World Inferno and The Hold Steady, which are the two most high-profile things that I've done probably in my career musically. And on one level, don't have a lot in common. World Inferno was very much an anarchist punk collective, and Hold Steady is very much an indie rock band, classic rock band. Both were sort of had reputations for being hard drinking and hard partying. And both eventually have came to places where the fan experience was a real community, in, almost independent of the band. I mentioned the Hold Steady's new album, The Price of Progress, before the break. And that's your most recent Art Baby to be Born. Mm-hmm. It came out in March, didn't it? It sure did, yeah. Okay. And you got a tour coming up. Your novel, Someone Should Pay for Your Pain, came out in 2021, and Rolling Stone included it in their Best of Music Books of 2021, and it was the only novel in that list of music books. Not too shabby. You know, one of the funny things that, in terms of the reactions of people when they read it, is people describing it as like a fast read. I didn't think of it as a page turner. I thought of it as a page saver. Oh, good. You want to savor each page. You want to hang out there with the language a little bit longer. Camera speed. Sound production. Rock is lit. Season two finale. Take one. Rock is lit. Shh, Wyatt. Well, this is it, the season two finale. What could be better than having a great novelist and musician as my last guest for the summer? Enter Franz Nikolai. Franz is here to talk about his rock novel, Someone Should Pay for Your Pain, a story that follows singer-songwriter Rudy, his conflicted relationship with a successful former protege named Ryan, and Rudy's young niece, Lily, who wants to travel with him and whose surprise appearance forces a reckoning with himself and his past. BuzzFeed named it one of its 42 great books to read for spring 2021, stating, Starting at the midlife crisis of an early aughts indie rock never was, Franz Nikolai delivers a tight-fisted gut punch of a novel, weaving a road-weary world with a lyricist's skill for evocation, emotion, and economy, a knockout fiction debut from a longtime troubadour. In addition to records under his own name, Franz Nikolai was a member of cabaret punk orchestra World Inferno Friendship Society and The Hold Steady, which Rolling Stone magazine called one of the all-time great New York bands. Franz has also recorded or performed with dozens of other acts. His first book, the nonfiction The Humorless Ladies of Border Control, was named a season's best travel book by the New York Times. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Slate, the Paris Review Daily, the Kenyon Review Online, Plowshares, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Three Penny Review, and elsewhere. He has taught at UC Berkeley and is currently a faculty member in music and written arts at Bard College and in Columbia University's MFA Fiction Program. Welcome to Rock is Lit, Franz. Thanks for having me. So I just called an episode of What's in My Bag, that Amoeba Records show. I love that show. You and some of your bandmates from The Hold Steady filmed an episode during lockdown, the home edition. I think it was you, Craig, and Steve, and you each picked three albums. Yours were Do Why Diddy by Zap, Dr. John Plays Mac Rebeneck, and the original Boogie Woogie Piano Giants record. 
So I can't wait to find out what's in your metaphorical five questions bag. So let's do this. <laughs> yeah. What music video made the biggest impression on you? The earliest one I can remember seeing, because I grew up in the middle of the woods in very rural New Hampshire, and they hadn't strung cable out there. So I didn't see, I didn't have access to MTV for years after people my age did. So it was only when I, when I went over to a friend's house, and I remember seeing the video for Tom Petty's Don't Come Around Here No More. Oh, yeah. The one where he's the Mad Hatter, and they cut up the Alice cake and eat it. And mm -hmm. I was just like, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty freaky one. That one definitely made an impression. Okay, that's a good choice. Number two, you're in a bar, and you see a rock star sitting in the corner nursing a drink and reading your book. Someone should pay for your pain. Who is it and what do you do? You probably already met everybody you want to anyway, but who is it? I've met a lot of people. I mean, I would the, my my stock answers on that are people like Dylan or Tom Waits. But honestly, I think I would leave them alone. Because one of the things I've learned over the years of meeting a lot of the people that I really respect is that you don't always get the experience that you want. And I also I don't want to put people in the position of having to pretend that they like it. That's <laughs> which is may seem like kind of a funny thing to say, but I understand, you know, both in the music that I put out under my own name and in the books that it's a sort of a specialized taste and it's not for everybody. And so I feel the same way about my neighbors coming to my shows. You know, oh, I really? don't I, I don't necessarily it makes me uncomfortable for them to be there because I don't want them to be in the position of being like, hey, yeah, saw your show. Great show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. Does that apply to family as well? Well, family is different. I mean, they've, you know, they've seen my most embarrassing moments over the years. True. They, they know where it's all coming from. I just kind of think if I ran into Tom Waits, I would want to talk about baseball or something. <laughs> all right. Fill in the blanks. When I hear blank song, I think of blank. It's so open-ended that it w I was staring at that question for a while. I'm not a big crier to songs, but I went to mm. my son's kindergarten graduation uh, yesterday, and they were singing one of these, you know, sentimental kid songs that they have for kindergarten graduations, and it was making me think of the last two songs that I cried to, and they were both kid-related, which just makes me a sentimental dad, I guess, but it was... Aww. Uh, Wandering Boy off a Randy Newman record, uh, which is a beautiful song about the limits of the, of the ways that you can protect kids, you know. And then Children and Art from Sunday in the Park with George, the Stephen Sondheim musical, which is about legacies. You know, what are realistically the kind of legacies you can leave? You can have children and you can make art, and that's what's going to survive you, those two things. I'm making art. I'm not making children. <laughs> so I, I hope it will live on. We'll see. What's on your playlist now? Honestly, a lot of Sondheim. Okay. That's another reason why that's at the top of my list. I think a lot of people who only know my records or sort of know my onstage persona would have assumed that I was a big musical theater buff. And that's not really the case. I just sing that way. And I'm, I'm into theatricality <laughs> on stage in all kinds of ways. But, you know, like a lot of people, the, the musical theater voice was a large step to get over. But for whatever reason, at the age of 45, Sondheim clicked with me, and, I, and I've been on a deep dive, which is a kind of a funny thing, because 
I've been obsessed with music now for 35 years. And so at this point, if you're discovering something new and really getting involved in something new, it tends to be something, someone really obscure or someone like someone I just discovered, you know, this person who recorded three songs in 1942 and disappeared and you got to hear this. Or here's a, a brand new band that, you know, only a couple people have heard. And so to discover someone or just to have someone click with you who like couldn't be more canonic is a really uh-huh. weird experience. Just, you know, it feels like I'm running, running around going like, have you heard about this guy, Shakespeare? Turns <laughs> out he's amazing. <laughs> yeah, because most of us sort of stop listening to new stuff when we're about 25 or 30. We just kind of get stuck in our ways there. So even though it is somebody canonical, at least you're listening to some new stuff or you know, stuff that's new to you and widening your, your purview. Well, I mean, say what you want about streaming infrastructure, but it really allows you to stay up on stuff. Oh, yeah. And do deep dives on stuff. And I love doing that, you know. So, mm-hmm. you know, I have other stuff. I keep a, a running playlist every year of stuff that has stuck in my ear. And, you know, if anyone's interested, on December 31st of every year since 2007, I've, I've posted a link to what I call my audio yearbook, just like whatever was in my ear, stuck in my ears that year. And it's, I'm already up to 150 tracks on it, which is unprecedented. Oh, wow. But other stuff. So like the new Billy Nomates record, it's this great British performer. Vic Ruggiero, the singer from the Slackers, just did a great solo record. I always love everything he does. He's really a fascinating character because there's this thing about the 1950s in American popular music. It's this really unusual time of ferment and melting pot in the sounds because you got the very tail end of big bands and crooners, and you got the rise of early rock and roll, but that's still sort of country and it's still sort of gospel. And you've got doo wop and you've got ska coming up in Jamaica. And that's just the world that Vic lives in, this guy, Vic Ruggiero. And he's writing songs in the, the old 32 bar AABA style. And he's just a really unique character because I can't think of anyone who's writing the kind of songs that you might write if you had an incredible record collection in 1957. Bobby said the times were a changing. Well, now they're sitting in my blind spot waiting. What's your favorite rock novel? So this is an interesting one because I do, I also keep running lists of my favorite music writing in part because I've taught classes. You're teaching it. Yeah. Yeah. Or writing about music. The ones that came to mind right away, so like Great Jones Street, the DeLillo novel. Everybody, well, not everybody, but so many people have, have said that one. That's one of the, I feel like that's one of the first really good rock novels. The most recent one, I thought of three. The most recently where I was like, oh, they really, they were really onto something. One was Jason Guriel's Forgotten Work. Do you know this one? I don't. Guriel is a writer, he's Canadian, and this is, it's a novel in verse. It's okay. all in, in heroic couplets along this sort of pale fire mode. Huh. About people tracking down a record whose, whose maker has been lost. That one was really interesting, if only for the 
I mean, it rang sort of true in, in, in the milieu, but also just for the formal conceit of writing it in verse. Michael Mohammed Knight's The Taqua Corps I really liked. I don't know that one either. I love asking this question because then my list just gets longer and longer. He invents a, a Muslim punk scene. So just... Uh, in, wow. Yeah. As it, in sort of the DIY punk circuit that people may recognize from the past 30 years, punk houses, you know, the ideologies around, uh, that, that develop around punk houses, but it's an Islamic punk scene. Good grief. And it apparently inspired a real Islamic punk scene, huh. the sort of underground popularity of this book. Okay. Um, so, so that's a good one. And Sam Lipside had a great one recently, No One Left to Come Looking for You. Mm-hmm. It's not one of his major works, I would say, but he was someone who was in Lower East Side and Williamsburg punk bands, you know, when he first moved to New York as a young guy. You know, there's generations of this sort of thing, right? And so to read that book, I felt like I was sort of reading an accurate account of the generation just before me. Right. You know, if I was the generation who had bands in Williamsburg, the generation before me had bands in the East Village, and he was, and he was one of those. And he's just a, he's a funny, sharp, cynical writer that I'm always happy to, always happy to read. Fantastic. And he was also, you know, and there's a, there's a tie in there because he was my thesis advisor on the work that became Someone Should Pay for Your Pain. Uh-huh. Didn't you get a blurb from him? I think I saw it. I sure did. <laughs> yeah. Well, those are great choices. My list is now longer of books I need to check out. And we're going to talk more about music and your novel, Someone Should Pay for Your Pain. But let's take a short break first and hear a little of the song Sideways Skull from the Hold Steady's brand new album, The Price of Progress. Back in a moment with Franz Nicolai. This is Franz Nikolai, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're back with Franz Nikolai, author of the novel Someone Should Pay for Your Pain and keyboardist and songwriter for the band The Hold Steady. So we're going to talk about the novel, but since I mentioned The Hold Steady's new album, The Price of Progress, before the break, and that's your most recent art baby to be born, mm-hmm. it came out in March, didn't it? It sure did, yeah. Okay. Let's stay with music for a bit. I had to play a snippet of Sideways Skull because Robert Plant gets a shout out in the first verse. It's referencing, you know, I'm speaking for Craig, the lyricist, but he was referencing a very specific photo of Robert Plant, where he's on stage at Nebworth with a a Newcastle and a cigarette, and he's holding a dove. Actually, if you're talking about the dove, that was Kizar in 1973, that concert. You probably know better than I do. (laughs) (laughs) That was from Kizar Stadium in San Francisco in 1973, and that photo is iconic. That's what he's referencing. Zeppelin is one of those bands that has never really clicked for me. And for a long time, it was, you know, because they're huge for the two guitar players in the band, Tad and Steve. And Tad went so far in the first years of the band as to make me a mix. He was like, I'm, fi- I'm going to sell you on Zeppelin finally. He was like, here's 12 or 15 songs that, that, uh, that's finally going to make you come around. And Didn't work. I think, uh, you know, I'm one of those guys who thinks they would have been an incredible instrumental band. <laughs> Wow. Well, I'm so, I'm, I'm so focused on lyrics usually yeah. that, that Robert Plant's just never going to get there for me on that front. The Hobbits aren't working for you? No. Oh, well. Can't get there. Okay. Hobbits and Vikings. Incredible band. Yeah. Yeah. Great band. The one I do like is the, uh, I, don't, I don't know the song times, the ba 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 dum. Oh, um, Fool in the Rain. Great riff. Piano driven, of course. Going back to the album, I just saw the segment on CBS Saturday Morning. That came on in May. I just saw that there. There's an interview with Craig and Tad, and, and, but then the whole band played, I think, three songs. Modesto is Not That Sweet and two tracks from the new album, Grand Junction and is it Perdido? Perdido, yep. Perdido, okay. You sounded great. The record is terrific. Congratulations on that. Thank you. There's also a book coming out, I believe July 25th, about the band, The Gospel of the Hold Steady, How a Resurrection Really Feels, by Michael Hahn and the band. How involved were you in that? Me personally? Not particularly. I I did a one-hour interview with Michael. It's an oral history, so he did the interviewing and transcription and edited it together. He wrote a little essay, and he solicited essays from some other Writers who are prominent fans of the band, and then from the fans of the band, we put out a general call because the fan community, it's one of those bands where the fan community is a huge part of the experience. Yeah. So we just sort of put it out there that if anyone wanted to write a little something about it, that they should send it to Michael. Well, you've got a lot going on right now. It's the 20th anniversary of the band, so we're, we're a, a little more active than we might otherwise be. And you've got a tour coming up. Have you got the whole thing booked or are you still adding dates? I think that all the dates for the rest of the year have probably been announced by now. 
Okay. We don't tour per se at this at this stage in the band. We do long weekends usually or flyouts. Generally residencies. We like the idea of of going to a place and sort of setting up shop. You know, as a middle-aged band, it's one of the ways of making a situation where we can do the fun stuff without all the stuff that's not fun, like the loading in and out and the driving all day and the Monday and Tuesday nights and, and, and so on. Yeah. And also we have a lot of information on where our fans are. Uh, and so we can go to the places where they're more likely to be. Let's hear a little bit more of the Hold Steady's brand new album, The Price of Progress. This is Perdido. She was twisting in the bucket seats and switching through the stations on the radio On the top floor of the parking ramp, gazing off across the Gulf of Mexico Waiting for the phone to ring to hit you with an update on the miracle You joined this band in 2003, left in 2010, then rejoined in 2016 but before, during, and after your time with The Hold Steady, you were playing with other musicians and bands and doing solo work. Let's talk a minute about the World Inferno Friendship Society. I just watched a 30-minute YouTube documentary today, and wowza. I mean, I've never seen anything like the performance that it was probably more than one that was filmed crazy in a, the best possible way. You have a good time? about the world the way you wish it was, sort of capturing that moment and preserving it. You said in the documentary, here's a quote, Inferno cost me many jobs and made me broke with terrible credit and homeless, and I still love it. So tell me more about this group and what it was about it that kept you in it, even though you were broken homeless. Well, I think a lot of people's early experiences in rock, if they're doing it right, sort of track along that, along that route. I mean, World Inferno, first of all, it was the first band that I was in that people cared about. It was the first band that I was in that had that gang feeling. You know, you want that in your, especially in your early bands where everyone's invested, everyone's contributing music, everyone's working towards a goal, everyone's making sacrifices where you're sleeping on floors, where you're building something from the time of playing for 10 people to playing for 100 people to the first time you play for 500 people to the first time you tour Europe. So there's that kind of feeling of momentum and excitement and the crowds are getting bigger and people that you don't know are coming to the shows or people that you don't know in those early years are talking about you on the internet. You know, there's all this. Yeah. World Inferno and The Hold Steady, which are the two most high profile things that I've done probably in my career musically, on 
one level don't have a lot in common. World Inferno was very much an anarchist punk collective, and Hold Steady is very much an indie rock band, classic rock band. Both were sort of had reputations for being hard drinking and hard partying. And both eventually have came to places where the fan experience was a real community in almost independent of the band. But definitely World Inferno was the first time I'd had an experience like that. Almost in my life. I grew up in this very isolated situation. So I didn't have the experience where I was, I had friends from, you know, from elementary school or friends from high school or friends from college. I I didn't have, and I was sort of a weird kid. (laughs) Uh, So World Inferno was the first experience that I had where I was like, oh, now I have these eight other people and we're, we're a gang and we have a shared sense of purpose and a shared sort of ideology. And we even have a shared sort of dress code. Yeah. And, you know, and we can go into a club in the middle of nowhere that we've never been before. And because there's so many of us and because we have this arrogance, you know, we can, we can make it about us, you know, and that was really intoxicating. The fans are called Infernites and there's a whole online community for them to, or there was. It almost reminded me of Deadheads following a band around and just having this whole identity as this group. Honestly, I had never heard of the band before. I was going to interview you and then started doing research, and I really like that band. It's just a shame what happened with Jack. For those of you who don't know, Jack died in May 2021 at age 50. Well, I think a part of that, what happened with him was baked into the project in a way which is maybe a cold-blooded thing to say, but it's the only conclusion that I can come to from someone who made drinking so much a part of his persona and so much a part of the appeal. And his own heroes and the people that he wrote about and sang about were people like like Orson Welles, like Peter Lorre, like Jeffrey Lee Pierce, are people who burnt out early and burned really bright and then wasted their talent, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And he used to say for the pat- on stage that he hoped someday to be, everyone- to be everyone's favorite dead punk rocker. Oh my gosh. Uh, and he got there. So I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> I have complicated feelings about it, obviously, because this was someone yeah. who was really, in a lot of ways, a mentor for me. He was nine years older than me, and I was really fresh to New York. And you're looking for an identity, and you're looking for t- someone to tell you show you how to do how to be in the world and he was someone who could present you with like here's how you act here's how you dress here's the rules for living and you could adopt that as a fully and i think that's why it was so appealing to the fans as well to a certain kind of person and i think he got trapped in a persona i guess is the short answer that's what it sounds like so i gather that man cannot even attempt to go on now that he's not here no that's it he was the center of it. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about some of your solo work. I'm a big fan of the song, This Is Not a Pipe. I'm a sucker for the banjo. All the lies I've ever told will come back to me one day. If this rain keeps coming, it'll wash the world away. All the lies I've ever told will come back to me one day. If this rain keeps coming, it'll wash the world away. This is it's a beautiful song. Thank you. 
And then New River, Spring for Me, really like that one too. I like the organ and, uh, and the piano and the horns in that one. I really love the video for the Hearts of Boston. Again, great banjo. Your wife Maria is playing the banjo in that, isn't she? Yeah, and she plays song banjo on the record too. The video for that, the backstory, so that my first book was called uh, The Humorless Ladies of Border Control, which is a kind of tour memoir uh, about touring in the former communist world in Eastern Europe and Russia and Ukraine. Some of it with Maria and some of it by, my, by myself. But for reasons of traveling light, I like to perform in suits. I know. That way you don't ever have to make a decision about what you're going to wear on stage. And I feel like you can age in it relatively gracefully. If you're always wearing a suit, then that fits you at 25 and it fits you at 55. But I didn't, I only brought one suit on those tours and these were, you know, these were multi-month tours and the suit was in a pretty horrific state by the time I got to the end of a six-month tour. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to ceremonially burn this thing if I make it to the end of this. It was a tour that had started in, uh, in Western Europe and ended in Beijing, essentially. Wow. And we did. We went, to, that's, at, that's at my dad's house, my childhood home in New Hampshire. And we made these scarecrows of my show suit and, and torched them. I said, we got to document this. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, you mentioned The Humorless Ladies of Border Control, your nonfiction book that came out in 2016. The New York Times named it a season's best travel book. We're moving on to your novel now. Your novel, Someone Should Pay for Your Pain, came out in 2021, and Rolling Stone included it in their Best of Music Books of 2021, and it was the only novel in that list of music books. Not too shabby. Yeah. So I think it's time for you to stop referring to yourself as a musician who dabbles in writing, as I've heard you say in several interviews. Have I ever said that? Yep, you have. I think I call myself a musician and writer. Yeah, well, okay. Well, I don't anymore. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, and it's part of my day job, too. I mean, I, I, split, I have a split appointment at Bard College in, in the music department and in the creative writing department teaching fiction workshops. And, uh, and I also teach in the MFA fiction program at, uh, at Columbia. So, yeah, writing. <laughs> may, write, I maybe make more money off of the writing than the music <laughs> at this point. All right, let's talk about the origin of the novel. After you wrote your nonfiction book, you were asked to contribute a piece of short fiction to a book that was a collection of stories based on replacement songs. Which replacement song did you use as inspiration for your story? I used Alex Chilton. Okay. And I thought about, not so much about that song in terms of its lyrical content, but in terms of, it got me thinking. You see these situations where a very popular or younger act decides they want to advocate for an older act that they think has been forgotten or hasn't gotten the attention they deserve or something like that. And that that must be a really ambivalent feeling for the person being, for the older artist being so honored. Hmm. I thought that would be a good starting point for a short story. And of course, this short story became more or less the first chapter of your novel. Yes. So how did that chapter grow into a whole novel? Well, I wrote the short story, and I thought it was reasonably successful in terms of the assignment of writing it something for an anthology. But I thought that it implied a lot of backstory, and that I had a pretty good idea of what that backstory was, and that maybe that then when I was sort of looking around my desk and saying, what's my next big project going to be, 
that maybe it was going to be have, after having written the book of nonfiction, a series of short fiction that I should see if I could write a novel and that maybe that could be the seed of it. Right. I didn't quite know how it was going to end, but I knew I could get the first hundred pages. And then hopefully when I got to that point, <laughs> I will have had some other ideas about, about how to, to, to bring it home. Hey, Lit listeners, if you're enjoying the episode so far, stop what you're doing and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods or Apple Podcast. I'll leave links in the show notes. Seriously, Rockets Lit is a new show in a sea of podcasts. Help me build momentum about this first and only podcast devoted to rock novels. The way to build that momentum and grow an audience, besides listening to the episodes and telling your friends to check us out, is to get Rockets Lit on some podcast lists with your ratings and comments. It'll only take a minute, it won't cost you a cent, and you get some good karma. Links in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. I listened to quite a few interviews with you about the novel, and there's one question that kept popping up that I kind of got the feeling had become a pet peeve of yours. Do you know what I'm talking about? The question, is the main character me, essentially? Yes, (laughs) yes. And I love your response to that kind of question. Here's a quote from one of your interviews. You said, quote, The fact that people are so insistent that the novel must be true says something about the way people consume novels, end quote. I love that. What does that say about the state of the novel in popular culture right now? Is it dying, do you think? I don't think it's dying. I just think that the readers are approaching it. Many readers, of course not all readers, are confusing them with memoir. You know, which has something to do, mm-hmm. I think, structurally with the the popularity of of memoir in the late nineties, early aughts, and and beyond, and the confessional, the the nature of most writing on the internet, which tends to be first person confessional, or has has tended to be, and so I think people who are not like, I was going to say, incredibly sophisticated fiction readers, but I don't want to be condescending about it. I just think like there's a <laughs> there's a mode of interacting with writing that has gotten a little confused by people yeah. maybe who don't read a lot of fiction, right? And and sort of think about write, writing and literary writing as part of more or less the same stew as personal essays and memoir. And that gets caught up with the cliches about write, write what you know and, sort, and you know, stay in your lane identity-wise in terms of the kind of characters you're writing, which is all well and good, but it's a little bit of a dead end, I think, for fiction writers. You know, obviously, in Someone Should Pay for Your Pain, I'm writing a world that I know very well. Yes. And I'm writing types that are familiar to anyone who knows that kind of world. But I think the, the analogy that I make is with the campus novel, of which anyone who, who loves fiction can come up with their list of, of favorite campus novels. And there are all kinds of tropes in the campus novel. And now that I'm working in, you know, in college departments, I understand the appeal for people who get a job on a, on a campus and, and they're like, what is this weird world? I got to write about this. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. But you understand that there is this sort of like lascivious tenured professor and there's the officious assistant dean and there's the out to lunch college president and there's the person who's really good at playing the office politics and, you know, whatever. These are the tropes of the campus novel. And I feel like that if people feel like that they're recognizing people in a rock novel, that that speaks to the, the sense that there are types that reappear in rock worlds. There's the, you know, there's the ambitious young songwriter whose new record always sort of sounds like whoever their most famous friend is at that time. 
Or there's, in the case of the, the main character, there's these folks that have sort of never quite taken off, and they've sort of passed from being underground sort of cult favorites to being legends without ever quite getting popular. Mm-hmm. And that happens to a lot of people. It's happened to a bunch of my friends. It's happened to a, a lot of people that I, that I look up to. And it's a really difficult experience, I think, to live in because it means that you never quite achieve a kind of security, either financially or reputationally. And it's a career path that a lot of people in the creative industries have to pass through, where, you know, where there's excitement around you in your 20s. Maybe you can get some momentum that carries you for your, through your 30s, but if you don't really break through into, out of the gravity and into orbit, there can be a couple pretty rough decades with the sort of idea, the dream that you're going to be rediscovered at some point as an elder statesperson and your, and your albums will be reissued and you'll get some profiles, but that doesn't always happen, you know? And even if it does happen, it, you know, it's only good for a couple months. the period where I came off the road for a couple of years in my late 30s, you know, I would be on bills with some people like that. And I just, it looked hard. And I could feel that sort of feeling brewing in myself of just being angry, you know, and not mm-hmm. being able to, and sort of writing off a show before it even started. And so I sort of wrote the character a little bit of it as a cautionary tale for myself, not as a description of myself. Now that we're getting into the meat of the novel, I gave a very brief synopsis at the beginning of the episode, but here's a fuller synopsis, stolen shamelessly from Gibson House Press, your publisher. In the doldrums of a career as a cult figure, singer-songwriter Rudy has been overshadowed by Ryan, his protege, to the point where Rudy is now identified as an imitator of the younger man. Ryan is generous and supportive of Rudy, but Rudy finds it hard to be grateful. Forced to confront the limitations of his own talent and ambition, his resentment triggers a confrontation that ends in their estrangement. When Rudy's niece, a teenage runaway who admires the freedom of his lifestyle, turns up asking to join him on the road, he has to come to terms with the nature of his obligation to family and accountability for his past. Someone Should Pay for Your Pain is an exploration of the nature of creativity and popular success, artistic and ethical influence, the pathos of the middle-aged artist, changing standards of sexual morality, and guilt and penance in a post-religious society. Okay, and to add a little bit more context of my own here, Rudy travels to Gainesville, Florida in the late 90s, joins a band called the Expats that becomes locally big, and then they break up and go their separate ways, and Rudy strikes out as a solo singer-songwriter and hits the road. So there's a lot about the book that involves life on the road for a solo musician, which you know a little something about. Besides the inspiration that you gleaned from your own experiences as a musician, did you have to do any kind of research for the novel? Did I have to do any research? I don't think I... I did a little research on the geography of Gainesville, the Gainesville punk scene in the 90s. Yeah. Because that's 
you know, Rudy's a, de- a generation older than me. I was in punk bands in the aughts. He was in punk bands in the 90s. And I never lived in Gainesville. I would go to Gainesville for a festival called The Fest, which is a, a, a great punk fest that's been going on for a couple decades now. And I knew the, guy, the guys in Against Me, the folks in Against Me, pretty well. And they came out of Gainesville. And a little bit of the guys in Hot Water Music who came out of Gainesville. So I was sort of aware of the Gainesville punk scene in the 90s and No Idea Records and that that was a real hot spot. There was a book, which I cite in the acknowledgments. Um, it's Matt Walker's 2016 Gainesville Punk, A History of Bands and Music. Yeah, that was like a, a very sort of light layer of research in terms of what the Gainesville Punk world looked like in terms of punk houses and where were the venues. And, you know, there's a scene in the, in the book where Rudy walks from his punk house to the show and you can follow that on Google Maps. You know, it's it's accurate to Gainesville. Oh wow! I think I was pretty accurate to the geography of Gainesville. They didn't have a Coke bar, as far as I know, in Gainesville. <laughs> Ooh, okay. I was wondering about that. No, that was a Williamsburg phenomenon. No way, a Coke bar. Okay. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, called Cokies. <laughs> if, believe it or not. <laughs> um, subtle. <laughs> very subtle. How'd they get away with it? But you know. The research was being in these kind of music scenes for two decades. Yeah. There's nothing I love more than writing a, a driving around montage, as anyone who's read both of my books will know. Uh, so anytime I've been out driving by myself, I'll keep a notebook in the passenger seat and a big marker so I can scribble on it without taking my ass off the road. And I love novels that have great driving montages. So like Lolita has incredible driving mon- montages. Oh, Yeah. The first chapter of James Salter's A Sport and a Pastime is an incredible driving montage. I think it's in France. That allows you to build up a lot of material in the notebook <laughs> That's, that can be applicable to all kinds of writing. <laughs> right. So if you call that research. Oh, yeah. Well, I do. I do. And that comes through in the novel. And it's one of the things that makes it so nuanced and interesting. It gets into the weeds of what being on the road is like, not just the show. I also really like the title. The working title of the novel was actually The Morris Column, which is the title of Rudy's most successful solo album. And early in the story, he's staying at Ryan's mansion while Ryan is out on tour. And somebody there at the house, I think it's the caretaker, mentions how big Rudy's album Morris Column was. And Rudy replies, here's a quote, that was 15 years ago, though. I've done, what, five cents? Got a new record out a few months ago, and you can just feel him thinking, move on. And you said someone told you that you were mistaking the novel's central metaphor for a title and calling it the Morris Column. Did you give any pushback about changing that title? Yeah, I was really tied to that title for most of the period I was writing the book. And people kept telling me it was a bad title. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I wasn't listening because they were right. I was mistaking the central metaphor. For, I, you know, 
I don't think there's anything wrong with using the central metaphor as a title necessarily, but I understand that it's not real hooky if you're trying to sell books. Um, and someone should pay for your pain only came to me very late in the process after you know it had been out in submission for a couple months already. And my agent was like, well, shit, man, <laughs> I wish you had come <laughs> up with this a few months ago. Okay. So you had already written the part where Rudy's outside the motel room and he sees the billboard that says someone should pay for your pain and it's an ad for a personal injury lawyer. You'd already written that part? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, the manuscript was locked. <laughs> wow. Uh, but I understood, I, you know, at that point, it, I'd gotten a lot of rejections on the, on the manuscript and I was thinking, you know, a lot of people are not liking this title. So let me just go through the, the manuscript again and, and see if there's anything else in there. And I stumbled upon this thing with the billboard, which is a real billboard that I saw somewhere out west. Mm -hmm. I haven't been able to locate a picture of it or any record of it on the internet or seen it ever again. It was just one of those things I wrote down in my notebook when I was driving around. But yeah, I mean, I think it captures a lot. And I'm glad I stumbled on it before publication because I do think, you know, it captures that sense of, of resentment that Rudy has. Yeah, but also the incentives that um, that exist in the music industry and in creative industries in general, and sort of the way that we were talking about before, uh, in the way that you have to your, the the incentive is to monetize in the parlance of the day, monetize your trauma. <laughs> yeah, or that people want to have a backstory around a piece of art, you know, that goes in the press release that's like, oh, here's this terrible thing that happened to this person and they created this piece of art around it. It's a weird dynamic. But then there's also that sense of entitlement. Someone should pay for your pain. It depends on where you put the emphasis on it. Is it, you know, someone out there should pay for your pain. Someone should pay for your pain. You deserve <laughs> it. Someone right. should pay. You know, they should, they should give you money or they should, you should be able to get your revenge on the people you know, et cetera, et cetera. It also kind of speaks to the self-pity that Rudy has. Oh, absolutely, self-pity, yeah. I mean, there's a fine line between self-effacement and self-pity that's really hard to walk. I don't get angry, I get even I tell you, boy, it best be believed All the stars in the sky Someone will pay for the way you lie Don't you think I'll forget My tickets, I'll get even yet On my mama's life Someone will pay for the way you lie So the leader of the expats, the punk band Rudy is in during the 90s in Gainesville, is this nihilistic anarchist guitarist and songwriter named Seb, S-E-B. Seb gives the band members a few practical commandments to live by. Here they are. No sunglasses on stage. Bring your sleeping bag. Don't bring a pillow. That's what your jacket is for. Use your last 20 to buy a round of drinks before you buy dinner for yourself. No rules, but our rules. Now, I get bringing your sleeping bag and using your jacket as a pillow and in the spirit of band camaraderie, even the bit about using your last 20 to buy a round of drinks before you buy dinner for yourself. But talk to me about the sunglasses rule, because many a rock and roller breaks that one. I think for a, a punk rocker of Seb's generation, he would have just seen that as corny. Mm. As, that's 60s and 70s stuff. So it's a generational thing. 
you know, I've worked with a lot of, again, like people who came up through the, through Indian punk in the jet, like square in the Gen X scene, you know, the eighties and nineties, little, again, a little older than me. Their distinguishing characteristic is rules, <laughs> is picking a bunch of, in many cases, kind of arbitrary sounding rules, but being extremely insistent on them. I understand what it's about. It's about making a distinction. And, you know, we're in a time now where, there, where there's not so much a mass culture and then a counterculture as this binary, you know, the overground and the underground. Now it's, it's, it's people in there. Everybody can stake out their own little territory. But I understand that if you were coming up in that time identifying against the mass culture, right? That it was important to set, even if they were totally arbitrary rules, just as a way of saying, I'm not that. I'm this. And this is how I can tell who's with me. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so I think, you know, especially in a time where the the hegemonic voice of rock and roll culture was still baby boomer culture, you know, and 25th Mm -hmm. or 30th anniversaries of of late 60s events of various kinds, that someone could look at the the tropes of that sort of peak rock star era and say, we're defining ourselves against that. And, you know, even if it's as simple as don't wear sunglasses on stage, that's, that's corny. That that's the sort of rule that someone like Seb might make. Okay. It's during the expat Gainesville period that we first meet Ryan, and he's this younger kid with stars in his eyes who loves the band. And Rudy takes Ryan under his wing and offers him some professional advice. For instance, keep a pad of paper by your bed in case you get an idea for a song in the middle of the night. Play for 10 people like you're playing for a 1,000. And if you're ever lucky enough to play for a 1,000, pick 10 and play for them. So is this advice somebody gave you along the way when you were first coming up as an, a novice musician, or is it something that you just you learned through experience? That's something that I've learned through experience. I think it definitely is important to play for 10 people as if you were playing for a thousand people in the sense of, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of glib summation of a, mm. of a, of a worldview, mm-hmm. you know, because part of the thing about playing for 10 people is you want them to have that intimate experience. Uh, so in a way, it's not the perfect advice, but I think the idea there is that, you know, I've seen a lot of people come into a show and let themselves be defeated before the show has even happened. If they, if there's not as many people as they hoped. Okay. Yeah. Um, and my feeling about that is that that's one of the major splits between the experience of a performer and the experience of a music fan. Because if you talk to a music fan about like what are the most memorable shows you've ever seen, a lot of times that story is, oh, I went to see so-and-so and there was only like 10 or 20 people there. It was amazing. It was the best yes. I've ever seen. And a lot of times if you'll talk to the performer about the very same show, they'll be like, oh, God, what a nightmare. Nobody showed up. Mm. You know? And so I think there's a real cheat code if you're a performer, if you can put yourself in the fan mindset in those situations and say, hey. This is going to be really memorable for those 10 people. And part of that is, is not letting yourself, you know, I think a mistake a lot of people make, that they think they, they spend their whole stage banner referring to how few people are there. 
And I think that bu- that bums everybody out. You know, sure. <laughs> I think they, yeah. the the idea is to to sort of acknowledge what what the performer feels like is the awkwardness, but instead, what it does is it spreads the awkwardness around. <laughs> um, and so, if you can put yourself in a in the mindset, which is hard, which you know, I'm saying this as as if I can do it every time, and I totally have not been able to do it every single time. But if you can put yourself in the mindset of given as much energy to that room as you would give to a packed room, um, they're going to talk about that show, you know, right. <laughs> and that's, yeah. you know, if you're the kind of person who's only drawing 10, 10 people in a particular place, how do you build that? One of the ways is to try and get more, is to get more press, I guess. But one of the really good ways is to have people be talking about the last time you came through town and to say, you got to come see this. And if, you know, if each of the 10 people brings, brings two friends, then you have a better show the next time around. Well, there you go. Since we're talking about artists getting started, artists trying to break through, let's talk more about Rudy and Ryan's relationship, the dynamics there, because Ryan is, as I said, has got stars in his eyes and he wants that success. And and I think that whole situation with them, how one took off and the other didn't, raises the question of, of why certain people succeed and why certain people don't. You know, Ryan just seems to have this incredible need to connect with other people and Rudy pushes people away, and he does it in his lyrics as well. There are songs that you almost have to decode. What's your take on their relationship, the artists that they are, the differences in their songwriting? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I do think that there's a misconception sometimes that there are certain artists who are thwarted in their attempt for success, or that like they should have been bigger. And I often think that your level of success is encoded in the kind of art that you're making. That's interesting. Never really thought about it in quite that way, but that makes sense. You know, or that there's this perception that someone who gets really popular is somehow being cynical about it. Um, Mm. Obviously, there are people who are cynical, or there are people who sort of like try to write songs like other popular songs. But actually, in general, I don't think those people get as popular as they want to be. Because I think music fans can sniff that out. Oh, absolutely. And I think music fans, by and large, obviously there's exceptions, by and large, connect with stuff that has a sense of authenticity about it. Sure. And so I think for Ryan in the book, he is successful because he has authentically this almost desperate need to connect with people. And that manifests in his music because his lyrics are so raw and so literal. Yeah. And so anyone can understand them. You know, they're easy to get and they're easy to yell back at him and they're easy to like get tattooed and they're easy to put in your yearbook. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And that's the sort of thing that makes a popular act. And Rudy, you know, maybe his songs are more sophisticated by some measure but they're not reaching out their hands to grab other hands, right? They're, right. they're making people come to him and storm the, the castle walls and break through and yank down the drawbridge. And there's a lot of music out there. And a lot of people are, are just not interested in putting that kind of effort in with music yep. that doesn't want to meet them halfway. I don't know. I, I think of... Some of the people that I've have met before they were famous who went on to become famous, a lot of times there was, you could just tell, even when there was only 
15 people in the room. I remember the first time I saw Amanda Palmer perform, I was like, oh, that person's going to be famous. You know, and same time, same with, <laughs> and, and she is. Yeah. And same with Against Me. I was like, oh, this band is going, this, they're going to be huge. You know, there's really something here. a teenage anarchist looking for revolution I have the style, I have the ambition read all the authors I knew the Ross Logans there was a war but the class war I was ready to set the world on fire I was a teenage anarchist looking for Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So changing gears a bit here, we've already talked a little bit about academia, and we're both a part of that world. You split your position between music and writing departments at Bard College. I heard that you ask your students in your songwriting workshop class to email you the name of their dream guest, and you'll see if you can make it happen. Now, I'm not in your class, but I've got my list handy. <laughs> well, who's your list? Well, the obvious pick would be Jimmy Page. Uh-huh. Can you help me out? Uh, he doesn't even do a lot of interviews, does he? No. You know, it's one of the things that I can offer them from my whatever my weird position is in the music industry world. Obviously, I, it's it's a little easier for me if they're in indie rock or punk or folk songwriting sure. world. You know, I can't get Beyonce on Zoom, but I can get you know Francis <laughs> Quinlan or uh, you know Ani DeFranco or uh, Anais oh, Mitchell cool. or someone like that to answer wow. a few questions. Yeah. It's usually one person's dream guest and not necessarily the whole classroom's dream guest. So there's a little bit of a weird imbalance there when one person is (laughs) exploding with excitement and the other people, you know, (laughs) have maybe listened to the playlist I put together and are hearing that have just heard for that that person for the first time. Mm -hmm. But it is an opportunity to have them talk to someone who's out in the world who's not me about their process and about how they think about songwriting. I think that's fabulous. It's easy for students to romanticize the process of songwriting. And one of the things that I want them to understand is is the work that gets put into it, especially about around revision, which is something that young creatives are often quite resistant to. Oh, this just popped into my head. I've got one more to add to my list of people I want to get in contact with besides Jimmy Page. You appeared in the book trailer for Salman Rushdie's Luca and the Fire of Life. Yes. I'd love to get Salmon on the show to talk about his novel, The Ground Beneath Her Feet. How did you wind up in that trailer? That was, if I recall correctly, and that was like 15 years ago at least, the director of the book trailer was a woman named Siri Moskowitz, who I, I, I don't even know. What she, maybe she's still in, the, in, in that business. I'm not sure. But someone who I think I had met through Dresden Doll's World 
through Amanda. Mm. She was in Amanda Palmer's world. And Dresden Dolls were a group that I occasionally performed with, opened for in various guises. They opened for World Inferno. You know, we were sort of like like-minded bands around the same time. Like they would come to New York yeah. and we would get them on our shows and we would go up to Boston and get on their shows and recorded. I, I don't know, just good friends. Uh, she wanted someone with that look and I had that look at that time. And so I went down and, and, and filmed. I, you know, I never met, I never met Rusty. Oh, it was darn. A different, it was a different shoot. But it's a funny little tidbit. It is. It's a great trailer. So shout out to Amanda Palmer and the Dresden Dolls for hooking you up. In fact, let's hear a little Dresden Dolls. This is Good Day. God's been a lovely day. Everything's been going my way. I took out the trash today. And I'm on fire. So I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. You can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. Drinks mentioned in your novel. Here we go. Tim Horton's Coffee. Jameson. Brown L. Gin and Tonic. Red Bull. Mimosas. Dewars. Heineken. Whiskey Sour, Pop-Off Vodka, an Old Fashioned, Budweiser, Corona, and my favorite, White Russian Made with Yoo-Hoo. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yep. I admire the research and attention you've done for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I very much enjoyed doing it. I loved your book. To hear them listed out like that, very few of those are drinks that I would put even on my top 10 favorite drinks. So I'm going to have to go with, with Tim Horton's coffee. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. Corona takes a backseat to Tim Horton's coffee. Look, All I, right. I'm not saying I like Corona particularly. I'm just saying if I had to pick one beer for the rest of my life, it would probably be a light Mexican beer. Gotcha. Whereas like um, cheap coffee shop coffee, I've had a lot more of that than I've had, than I've had alcohol in my life. White Russian made with Yoo-Hoo, Franz? I will admit that in my years as a bartender, that was drawn on that experience of, of some dirtbag walking in and being like, hey, uh, I want a white Russian and, and, and handing me a Yoo-Hoo and being like, can you make it with this? Oh, <laughs> God. Hey, man, if you're paying, I'll mix. Did you try it? No. <laughs> okay. I do like white Russians. You know, I'm not a big liquor person. I do like gin and tonic, but I'm, I'm really more of a wino. There is no wine in this novel. That's how you know it's not me. <laughs> okay. Next category, best place to crash while on the road mentioned in your novel. These are not great choices here, but you got to pick one. Your car, van with your stinky bandmates. Or the tour bus, like Ryan's tour bus in Chapter 11. So I think of those three options, if you've got a car that's really set up for it, and I, I've known a few people who have, where like the back seats are folded down and there's a mattress with some bedding, you know, and you've, yeah. and you've done it so there's curtains or, or the back windows are blacked out or something like that. 
I would choose that. Okay. You know, there's something to be said for a tour bus, but you don't actually sleep very well on a tour bus. It didn't sound very comfortable, the way it was described in the novel. And I think that's an accurate description. <laughs> that's mm. one of those things about, your to, to take it back full circle to the difference between the, the way people imagine being a rock band on a tour bus, the experience of yeah. versus the reality of it. I've used this metaphor endlessly, but being in a rock band is a lot like being in the military. And being in a tour bus is a lot being, like being trapped in a submarine. You're in a, you're in a submarine bunk that's like a, a coffin not that much bigger than your body. Yikes. And it's, you know, everyone's el- everyone else's noises and smells. And you can understand why people start looking around for other things to help them sleep through the night. Yeah, that does not sound very appealing. <laughs> I left out Canada's Best Value Inn since that would have been the obvious winner among those choices. But... Rudy sometimes stays with strangers while he's on the road, and there's a great bit on page 144 in which Rudy ranks charity accommodations from least to most desirable. Here you go. Worst, young men living together. I can imagine that. Couples with cats who don't think their houses smell of cat, but they've just stopped noticing. Single men living alone. Married couples with children. And best of all, couples over 30. And finally, Single women living alone, rare, and only a fool would complain. Yeah, the married couples over 30 usually have a guest room for their in-laws, so that's really... Yeah. That's that's key. And they probably make you breakfast in the morning, too. Definitely, there's there's options in the kitchen. Yeah. (laughs) Good internet, you know, nice bedding. Yeah, I can imagine. Favorite place to play music in Asheville, North Carolina. When you get to Asheville, send me an email. Tell me how you're doing, how it's treating you. Did you find a new job? Did you find a new love? You mentioned Asheville, where I live, in the novel. Rudy was once on a bill at a venue in Asheville with this scruffy vagabond musician named Tom that Lily admires. You don't specify which venue, but I know that you have played at a few clubs in Asheville, so let's see how good your memory is. Oh, gosh. (laughs) The Emerald Lounge on Lexington, the Great Eagle, and Jolly Rouge on College Street. Do you remember any I of these places? Sorry, Christy. I don't remember any of those places. <laughs> I, did. <laughs> I didn't figure. Oh, but well. I believe it. I believe I played them. You did. You played the Emerald Lounge solo on October 24, 2012. That place is now closed. And you played the Great Eagle with the Hold Steady, June 14, 2007. Jolly Rouge, with the World Inferno Friendship Society, July 23rd, 2006. That venue is also closed. It's now this shitty restaurant. So in my defense, it's been, it's been at least a decade, if not longer. Yeah. It has been a while. Yeah, our most famous club is the Orange Peel, but you, I don't think you've played there, so I didn't include it. The Hold Steady played there in 2010, but you weren't with them then. But um, yeah, so you got to come back to Asheville. I would love to. I like Asheville. We, my wife and I have a good friend, Toby King, who's, uh, who's an ethnomusicology professor at the university down there. He's, oh. uh, he's 
pl- right. great banjo well, player. I hi- hired him on my record, Luck and Courage, to play a banjo part that I, I didn't have the chops for. All right. Well, you got to come, got to come down here and play. Favorite quote from your novel. Now, it was hard. This category was hard. It was hard to pick quotes for this section because I'd marked so many in the novel. But I narrowed the choices down to these. Here's the first one. It is desperately easy for music to lie, to be made and consumed in bad faith. Most of what people think is truth is just cliche, something they've heard so many times they figure there must be a reason. Truth isn't a necessary quality for a story. This is Rudy thinking of a response that he doesn't give to this kid, James, at whose place Rudy is staying. So that's the first one. Here's another one, and this is Rudy to Lily about why he continues to play music. Think about the thing you love the most and imagine hating it. Imagine how you could come to hate it and how you would feel about hating it. Would you hate the feeling as much as the thing? No, you'd hate the feeling more. You'd find comfort in turning that hate away from yourself into a smug superiority over people who still love that thing, like you know better. Pretend you'd groan when you just, and this is the kicker, dried up. Ouch. All right, here's another one. And this quote comes right after Ryan responds to Rudy's email, and they're about to reconnect. People who love you for the things you make, their love is conditional. You have to win it over and over again without end. Refresh it. Plead for it. Not like family, who you have to work to drive away. And here's the last one. And this is from Seb. All I ever wanted from anarchy was to park anywhere and drink in public. (laughs) All right. If you got to pick one of those, what resonates the most with you personally? I mean, I kind of love that one. (laughs) The Seb quote is pretty snappy. (laughs) <laughs> that's the easiest to quote and, yeah. and and happens to be true. I think that's true of the most most of the people that I've ever met who profess to be anarchists. <laughs> <laughs> the one about trying to hate the thing that you loved, that was a real feeling for me when I started to feel like I was slipping down a, a slope that I didn't want to go down as a performer. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously there's something I believe about each of those. What was the third one? People who love you for the things you oh, make. Oh, yeah, yeah, the, that business, right. <laughs> I've felt that as someone who makes records and who's been in bands that make records and watch other bands that make records, you know, that fans' love is often conditional. And that a part of being a, a music fan, at least in the kind that express themselves publicly or on the internet or, you know, so, so on, is, is making a judgment on the new piece of work. Yeah. And ranking, you know. <laughs> And I understand why that's fun to do, but from the from the, the side of the person who's making it, it often feels like you have to prove yourself over and over again. So this is about, you know, someone like Ryan looking for looking for a chosen family or a replacement family in his fans. That's like that's a dangerous game. Yeah. Because family loves you in a deeper way than fans of your work do, even if they think of themselves as really devoted fans. All you have to do is make a mediocre record and they'll turn on you. Thanks. <laughs> so what's the verdict? Which one are you going to pick? Oh gosh, I'll take uh, all I ever wanted from Anarchy is to <laughs> park anywhere and drink in public. Somehow I, I kind of thought so you that's, would. That's often how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here's the last category, and I'm scared to ask it, given what you've said earlier. Best rock guitarist. Here are your three options. Think real hard about this. Okay. Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page. Or Jimmy Page. 
Be nice. I'll choose Jimmy Page, I suppose. I think that's a really excellent choice. Sure. <laughs> I know you're focused on the new Hold Steady album, The Price of Progress, right now, and, and the upcoming tour and, and the Hold Steady book. But is there anything else you've got going on you want to tell listeners about? Yeah, honestly, I'm not that focused on the record because we started working on it so long ago. We started writing that, that music. That's really the pandemic record. The first songs of that record are from 2020. Oh, and so wow. it's been in the can for so long that it's almost like, well, okay, yeah. <laughs> but the thing that, that I've been focused on is next is trying to finish uh, my third book, which is called Band People, and it's going to be on University of Texas Press on their American music series. Nice. And that is about sort of the creative lives of mid-level band people. Uh, it's about you make this choice to be before you even know it's a choice in some ways to be mm -hmm. to be in rock to be in bands and a band is this funny combination of chosen family of small business of creative collaboration that people end up in in these lifelong partnerships economic partnerships creative partnerships of varying kinds of shifting hierarchies and i'm just endlessly fascinated in how people negotiate that over the course of their careers. And so I spoke to a lot of people and, and have been trying to assemble this book based on those interviews. Some people that the people have heard of and some people that they haven't and some people who stand off to the side of people that they've heard of. And, uh -huh. and that's what I'm trying to do, sort of a combination of the books I had in mind are, are sort of Studs Terkel's Working, Mm. Uh, where where he's interviewing people about their jobs and how they think about their jobs, but also Paul Berliner's Thinking in Jazz, which is this huge work of ethnography by this person who, who spoke to jazz musicians in Chicago in the '90s about about how they how they sort of how their brains worked around improvisation and about that sort of group creative collaboration. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I that's what I've been working on. I'm, that's been on my desk for a long time, and I'm hoping to finally bring it home in the next couple of weeks. Well, that was going to be my question. You're that close. I'm that close, and so th hopefully that means it can come out sometime in 24, like maybe fall 24. All right. Well, it sounds fascinating. I hope so. I, I sure yes. hope so. <laughs> At this point, I have very little perspective on it. I no longer know what's what's interesting and what's boring. Other people can tell me that. Yeah, I'm sure an editor will help you with that. That's one of the things that those sainted people do. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to read the book, and it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having such a wonderful podcast and for doing all that you know, deep research and, and close reading, and, and it's just wonderful to have this kind of conversation. Well, thank you. Where should folks go to find out more about you, The Price of Progress, Hold Steady Tour Dates, and your books, including Someone Should Pay for Your Pain? Yeah, franznicolai.com has pretty much all that. Uh, so F-R-A-N-Z-N-I-C-O-L-A-Y.com. Perfect. Thanks again, and best of luck with all your projects. Okay, you too. On the blade, blossom and the fruit. Now I know they're withering. There are mountain owls that take all day to climb downhill days.
Well, that's all, folks. Thanks for tuning in and making the first two seasons of Rock is Lit so special for me and I hope for all you lit listeners out there. And thanks to all the authors of rock novels and music gurus who have joined me on this journey so far. Wyatt and I are taking a much-needed break, me to plow ahead on my new book, and him to do whatever Rock is Lit mascots do in their spare time. But we'll be back with more great episodes in Season 3 coming this fall. I'll drop some bonus episodes and a few little goodies between now and then, so make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you won't miss anything. And please give us a rating and comment on Good Pods and Apple Podcasts. Let's keep Rock is Lit, the first and only podcast devoted to rock novels on everybody's radar. Thanks again for your support. Have a fabulous summer. Until season three, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. Franz, hang on a second. You froze twice and you got cut off. I'm sorry. That's okay. I can say it again. Sorry you froze there, Christy. Could you hear anything? I got as far as deadheads. Okay, now you froze. Can you repeat the question? Franz, you keep freezing. Oh, no. Check, check, check. Test, test, test. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll keep talking to you until it sounds good. Well, we'll just wait it out. You're, you're coming back. <laughs> Slowly. What was the last thing you heard clearly? Again, I grew up in a very isolated... Jesus. <laughs> well, this has been amazing. Apart from all of the freaking internet glitches and Riverside glitches and getting knocked offline and coming back on. And thank you so much for your patience. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Okay, that's a wrap. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.